It's good to be with you tonight. Um, we're going to continue tonight uh, looking at what the, God, or what the letter to the Romans says. There, there once was a dyslexic, insomniac, agnostic man. He used to lie awake at night wondering if there really was a dog. And we do not have to worry about if there really is a dog. There is one. And neither do we have to worry about if there is a God, because there definitely is one as well. And in the early chapters of Romans, Paul has been unfolding the full meaning of God's love through the gospel message. He's looked at the good news of being made right with God through the cross. He's looked at the good news of being transformed in character and conduct. The good news that one day our bodies and the whole of creation will be changed to be filled with the glory of God. But it's one thing to embrace the good news. It's another thing to live our lives in the light of that good news. What kind of a life is it that is worthy of the gospel? Well, we've been unpicking that a little bit over the last few chapters of Romans. And uh, we saw that there is a life of worship that is in response to that good news of God's message. A life lived out mindful of chapter 11. And there you have the doxology. Have you ever come upon anything quite like this? Extravagant generosity of God. This deep, deep wisdom, it's way over our heads. We'll never figure it out. Everything comes from him. Everything happens through him. Everything ends up in him. Always glory. Always praise. Yes, yes, amen. That's the doxology, and that is a life that we're called to, mindful of that, worshiping constantly. But then secondly, we see that from the first part of chapter 12, and this is what Steve took us through last week, we are to recognize and to use the spiritual gifts that God has given to each of us. And one of the best known passages from the book of Romans and possibly from the Bible, offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, our spiritual act of worship, being transformed by the renewing of our minds, testing and approving what God's will is, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, and using the different gifts that God has given us for the building up of his body, our church here and the church global. That's living a life in relation to the love shown through our gifts. And this week, in Romans 12, 9 to 21, we're going to consider a life lived in relation to the gospel, both in relation to our friends and love in relation to our enemies. So that's where we're going to. Dave read for us the chapter, the start of the, the section that we're going to look at here. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And you have it there in front of you. So do look through that. And that's what we're going to go through and unpick bit by bit. 
1 Corinthians 13.3 says, No matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I am bankrupt without love. Life is all about love, because God is love. The most important lesson God wants us to learn is how to love. And that's what Paul now unravels for us here, and he shows us the ingredients of what love should look like in our relations with each other, both here in Kirkpatrick and in the communities of people that we're connected to in family life, friendship groups, and beyond. And God wants this love to be the real thing. Back in 2007, Bolton Museum paid almost half a million pounds for this statue. It was of the ancient Egyptian princess, Armana. It was supposed to be three and a half thousand years old. But after three years of it being on display in the Bolton Museum, they worked out that it was in fact a fake, a fraud. And it had been made at the bottom of a garden, in a garden shed, by a guy and his parents, his elderly parents, George and Olive there, both in their 80s, had passed it off and had organized the sale of this statue and many other statues like it, netting the family almost a million pounds over 20 years. Now, eventually, it was discovered as being a fake. And in 2007, Greenhalla was jailed for four years and his parents received suspended prison sentences. And his elderly parents admitted to selling their son's work and making a packet from it. What looked real initially was exposed eventually as a fraud. And Paul recognizes in this section that we're looking at this evening the potentials for believers to also have the whole theological thing worked out in their minds, being as sound as a pound. But the love that they're showing often being exposed as being fraudulent, as fraudulent as the example here of the Armana princess. Jane's mum makes soup, and the grandchildren are all told it has a secret ingredient And the secret ingredient of her soup is that it's made with love. So what are the secret ingredients of our loving relationships with each other? Well, Paul spells it out clearly for us. And he shows us what the secret ingredients are supposed to be like for our lives. And the first one that he picks out is sincerity. Let's have no imitation Christian love. It's got to be without hypocrisy, he says. Your motivation and what you do can never be separated. If you have love in your mind for the person you are sitting beside, then that will change the way that you operate with them. But if you have no love no real love, if your love for them is false love, it will start to be exposed as a lie. 
in your behavior that you show to that person. If we let hypocrisy creep in, love ceases to be love and becomes something really quite nasty, grotesque, manipulative, competitive, and a pretense. We can't love people from behind a mask. Our love needs to be true. Love and truth go hand in hand. The second ingredient that Paul picks out here is discernment. Now, some of us are naturally good at discernment. I work in a school and I'm often involved in pastoral issues where good kids end up making really poor decisions because they haven't discerned the nature of their companions or the consequences of the choices that they're making. We are called to work at being good at discernment. Discerning what is good and what is not good. And we need to allow God's Spirit to help us if we're not naturally good at that. We have to hate what is evil. When love encounters what is evil, it does not participate in it. It dares to confront the person involved and inspire them to behave in a right way. In order to repel what is evil and cling to what is good, you have to be able to tell the difference between them. So love shows discernment. The third ingredient that Paul picks out for us is devoted affection. Now I once had a scruff of a little dog called Maisie. And she followed me everywhere I went. She slept in my bed. She sat on my knee as I watched TV. And when I came home from school, as a young person, she would race up and down the hall of my parents' home and she would be so full of delirium that she'd often piddle the floor in her excitement. Now that is a picture of devoted affection. Now hopefully it'll not quite be expressed in the same way here in Kirkpatrick. It'd be a kind of messy consequences if it did, but Paul is saying quite clearly that there has to be an affection that binds members of the community of believers together in the same way as real love and affection bind a family together. Now we all know that family relationships can be challenging. I have three brothers and three sisters and I know what challenges that can pose in terms of harmony in the home. Relationships with in-laws or parents or kids or siblings are often demanding. But like it or not, we are members of the one body, of this family. And every one of us is a vital member of this family. We need each other. So we must make every effort to drench each other with tenderness and with kindness. That was devoted affection. The fourth ingredient, honor. Whenever you read commentaries on this, 
you very often discover a bit more insight into what the original words mean. And whenever you read the commentaries about this word honour, suggesting that we outdo each other in showing honour to each other, almost like a competition between each other. You'll never be able to despise people if you honour them, rather we are to listen if you honour them. We are to listen when somebody speaks and give his or her words careful consideration. We must allow others to disagree and respect their opinions, not beat them down with our own enlightened ones. We are to treat others' feelings with care and show real gratitude for them. The fifth ingredient, the fifth ingredient is enthusiasm or passion. Well, there was a little bit of passion going on this morning as Dave celebrated Palm Sunday in more way than one. Now, there is passion that is called for in our relationships with all the believers. Real enthusiasm. It's the opposite to lethargy and indifference. So am I indifferent to Keith? Am I indifferent to Desmond? Do I walk past them? Do I say hello? Do I acknowledge that they are alive and valuable members of my family here in Kirkpatrick? That is not how we are called to be. We are called to literally boil over with enthusiasm for each other. It's great to be here with you tonight. It's super to see you. And it's lovely whenever you come across people that show you that level of commitment and affection and just pleasure in seeing you and being with you whenever you meet them. It's a lovely thing, and that is supposed to be the mark of all of our relations to each other. Do you feel excited about being beside who you are beside tonight? Well, we should be. That's what we're called to be. Our sixth ingredient, patience in difficult times. How do we remain patient through tricky times? We continue to hope, anticipating the new. And thanking God as though that thing we're hoping for has already come in our lives. We continue to stick at our Christian life and count our blessings, even though we may feel discouraged and all the while we devote ourselves to prayer. Charles Swindle in his book, which is a a study on Romans, called Insight on Romans states, these qualities of love are indispensable. When people can hope together, remain relentlessly devoted to one another and to Christ, and talk to the Father on one another's behalf, nothing can tear their community apart. 
The seventh ingredient, generosity. Love isn't stingy. If we love others, we will want to contribute to the alleviation of their material needs. Love gives even when it hurts. It shares money freely, even if things are getting really tight at the end of the month. And when the contributions have run out, love continues to share in the need of others. The eighth ingredient, hospitality. This highlights love for strangers and for foreigners, people who are different to us. Hospitality has to be more than just having the easy people that we know and that we like around for a Chinese on a Friday night. There's nothing wrong with that, of course, but it's not the remarkable mark of love that we are called to. Sharing your home and life with others who are strangers or who are of a different generation or a different social or economic group or different ethnicity or language, it can be hard work. But the impact is often huge and significant on those who are shown love in this way. Let's be hospitable to each other. The ninth ingredient, graciousness. Blessing those who give you a hard time, even those who curse you. Now, it may seem bizarre that this is in the list of how to love our friends in the church family. Yet it is disquieting the number of reports from churches where bitterness and disagreement have resulted in splits and a very public show of hate rather than love. Paul is very clear that we need to be growing in grace in response to sin, a quality unique to God and an ability that can only come from him and be enabled by him. We need to be seeking to show grace to each other. The tenth ingredient, sympathy. Love never stands aloof from people in their hard times or in their rejoicing. Standing with people in every aspect of their lives. It's such a potent encouragement for them, but also such a counterculture signpost for others who are looking and observing the church from outside. And the alternative? To go through illness, loss, redundancy, disappointment, uncertainty, promotion, engagement, excitement, to do that in isolation from each other in the church family, well, where is the love there? Where is the reality? We have got to stand with people. We've got to strive to get beyond the superficial and live out the old proverb, shared joy is double joy. Shared sorrow is half sorrow.
And the final ingredient in our marks of love within the church community and family is humility. The last four instructions in verse 16 paint a picture of humility and reflect the relationships building of Jesus himself. When the verse opens with live in harmony, it's not instructing us to live as clones of Christoph or Edna or Dave or Steve, somehow speaking a same pre-written script on every subject. But it does remind us that we are of the same purpose. Even if our perspectives and approaches are different, we are to seek understanding before demanding to be understood, to find common ground with others without sacrificing truth, to treat others' thoughts with high regard. Jesus, as we will be thinking about over this next incoming week, climbed down from his heavenly place to suffer the humiliating death of a criminal for us. So where are our grounds to think of ourselves as being right on and more enlightened or more sophisticated in faith than other people? It's ridiculous, divisive and destructive to be proud of ourselves in any context. And added to this, it is anti-Christ, anti the nature of Christ. We are to be Christ-like. Seeking out people on the fringes and risking embracing them. With the mindset of Christ working in our hearts and minds and actions, there'll be no place for smugness. But people will notice. Coming to church at Kirkpatrick is a good experience. It could be an amazing experience for adults, for kids, for regular members, for visitors. If every one of us in our community loved in this way, with the secret ingredients of Romans 12. Sincerity, discernment, devoted affection, honor, enthusiasm, patience, generosity, hospitality, graciousness, sympathy, and humility. Love for the community of believers. But maybe even more demanding is the final section of this chapter. The last five verses. Love for your enemies. In verse 17 it says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, 
feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's be honest. We all have people we don't like. And there are probably more who don't like us. We can imagine what they're saying or thinking or doing against us. And if you're anything like me, if there's people like that that you can identify in your life, you'll spend a fair bit of time imagining them them getting their comeuppance and even discreetly helping justice along. And where the opportunity presents it, getting your own back. As Jane and I were chatting about this passage, she told me the principle this morning that brother David Jardine, that she's been spending a bit of time with on the healing ministries course, espouses if somebody has harmed him or been negative about him. And what he does is he consciously, every time he thinks about them, blesses them. And he blesses them and blesses them and blesses them. Until the motivation to curse them is completely overturned. Plans for revenge begin with cursing and wishing harm to come to the person who has injured or offended us. How we choose to respond verbally and in our minds prepares us for our next decision, for what our path of action will take. If we want to obey the command to avoid returning evil for evil, we must first control our tongues. We must obey the command to bless and not to curse. Equally, our behavior should not be reactionary. Pushed this way or that way by insult or injury. Rather, guiding us has to be the principle of seeing what good we can do. Allowing godly character to grow and work its way out in the situations that we find ourselves in. Now, of course, Paul is writing to an audience in Rome who were contending with attacks and living with continual threats against freedom and even against their lives. And we too may have people who persist in their attempt to harm us, real enemies. So if it's not possible to live at peace with these characters, how are we supposed to respond? Well, Paul gives us two strategies. One is active and one is passive. Firstly, when an enemy deliberately causes harm, he instructs us that we are to let it go. We are living in the age of God's redemptive grace. God acts to bring misery in continued sin in order to bring individuals to repentance. For us to show our enemies grace 
is to redeem our enemies as God has acted to redeem us. We're called to let those harms, let that bitterness go from our lives. And the second strategy is an active one. We are extend to him or to her the same hospitality that you would to a friendly stranger. It's not calling us to pacifism or allowing ourselves to be walked over and property and family to be harmed while we stand back and do nothing. Rather, he is encouraging us to allow our kindness to work the conscience of our enemy. And through our good conduct, our humility will bring about humility and repentance in return. Retaliation and revenge are both forbidden to the followers of Jesus. Not only here, but from the words of Jesus himself on the Sermon on the Mount. Who are our enemies? How are we going to respond to them? Well, in verse 21, the final verse of the chapter, it comes to a head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There are many people who have exemplified this truth in our lifetime. For some of us, we will remember Martin Luther King Jr. Some of us, we will remember Corrie Ten Boom. Most of us will know Nelson Mandela. Some of us will know Helen Roosevelt. But here in our own province, let me just remind you of the story of Gordon Wilson. He was the father of Mary Wilson, one of the 12 victims of the Enniskillen Remembrance Day bombing. He was a man of great Christian faith. He attended Enniskillen Methodist Church. He came to national and international prominence with an emotional television interview he gave to the BBC the same evening in which he described his last conversation with his daughter, a nurse, as they both lay buried in rubble after the bomb blast. This is what he said in his television interview. He described with anguish his last conversation with his daughter and his feelings towards her killers. She held my hand tightly and gripped me as hard as she could. She said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were her exact words to me and those were the last words I ever heard her say. To the astonishment of listeners, Wilson went on to add, But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. She was a great wee lassie. She loved her profession. She was a wee pet. And she's dead. She's in heaven. And we shall meet again. 
I will pray for these men tonight and every night. As historian Jonathan Barden recounts, no words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such a powerful emotional impact. On many occasions, he met with members of Sinn Féin. He met once with representatives of the Provisional IRA seeking the reasons for the, the bombing that day. He also met several times with loyalist paramilitaries in an attempt to persuade them to abandon violence. A legacy of reconciliation. That's it. That's what Paul is talking about here. The redemptive power of love in which Gordon Wilson believed with all his heart and mind and strength. Martin Luther King Jr. once wrote from prison on this very same subject. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To hate causes a chain reaction of evil. Violence gives rise to violence. Hate gives way to hate. Hate injures the victim just as much as the perpetrator. Love is the only force that's capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. And Martin Luther King Jr. spoke those words from experience of living them out. Who are you better against? What destructive power are you allowing anger and resentment to grip your life with? Love for those who, like us, is ordinary. Love for those who are like us puffs up our pride. Love for, love for those who are unlike us is extraordinary. Love for those who don't like us, that is revolutionary. We are God's master plan. Not overcome by evil, but overcoming evil with good. Let's rise to the challenge and look to his spirit to keep equipping us and transforming us. I'm going to spend a bit of time just reflecting on the quality, the ingredients of love in our own lives and reflecting on that master plan, overcoming evil with good. As we just watch and listen to the screen, spend time just reflecting on God working those in and through our lives and pray how we can make that come to truth and reality in our community and in the lives that our community touches beyond.